and all these algorithms for like hypertension and hyperlipidemia and diabetes, the first step is lifestyle modification. And it seems like we just skip right past that step and talk about medications. And what I've found in patient after patient after patient is lifestyle modification is far more powerful than any medication that we have on the market. Welcome to another episode of the Plant-Based DFW podcast show with Dr. Riss and Maya, where we talk about topics related to lifestyle medicine. And today in this episode, we have Dr. Arthi Thanguru, who is a triple board certified physician and endocrinology, diabetes and thyroid specialist who provides high level, well-rounded care at Complete Medicine in San Antonio, Texas. She takes an evidence-based approach to care, focusing on the whole patient, not their disease or symptoms. At her membership-based practice, Dr. Thanguru offers her patients direct access, frequent coaching, and continuous blood glucose monitoring. Dr. Thanguru holds board certifications in internal and lifestyle medicine, as well as endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. She's also certified in plant-based nutrition. The exceptional team at Complete Medicine offers telehealth to new and existing patients, giving you the ability to video conference with your doctor, receive medical care, and be prescribed medication while staying in the comfort of your own home. Hope you enjoy this episode. Subscribe to our channel to hear more great episodes like this one. Links to our YouTube channel, newsletter, podcast, and links for our guests are also located in the show notes. This is Maya, and I'm with my co-host, Dr. Riz. Today we have Dr. Arthi Thanguru. She's an endocrinologist from the San Antonio area, and more specifically, uh, a uh, plant-based endocrinologist. Uh, and so we wanted to invite her on to our podcast and uh, uh, have a nice conversation with her. Yeah, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. So why don't we start by just, uh, you know, introduce yourself to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So um, as you said, I'm an endocrinologist here in San Antonio. So um, that means I'm an MD and my training was pretty long. So first it was uh undergrad, which I did at Northwestern, um, then came back to San Antonio. I'm from Texas for medical school, um, went to Baylor uh, in my hometown, Houston, for internship, and then met my husband. I've been chasing him around the country since then. So I finished my residency at Tulane University School of Medicine, and then we did our fellowship up at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, and then we wanted to come back to Texas and both found jobs here in San Antonio. I started my career working at a large endocrinology private practice called Diabetes and Glandular Disease Clinic. Um, it's actually uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, um, endocrinology private practice in the country. Um, so I got to see a lot of patients, which it was just such an amazing experience because, you know, there's patients flowing through my door. And as as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, diabetes in San Antonio is a pretty big, big problem for our patients. So just got to really um, hone my skills, read the guidelines over and over again, get a lot of patient experience. I was seeing, you know, 30 patients a day at that practice. And um, it was wonderful um, for a new, new attending physician practicing on her own. Um, but there were a lot of things about the healthcare system that I didn't love. Um, mostly the patient experience was suboptimal. And I, I just believe that all of my patients are VIPs. And I feel that all of my patients deserve a standard of treatment and care and convenience that 
I wasn't able to provide in the traditional insurance-based clinic model. And I also started learning a lot about pricing transparency and looking at how much my patients were paying. Um, and I got drawn to this model called direct primary care um, and direct care in general. And so I left that practice about a year and a half ago to start a direct care endocrinology practice. It's, I think my practice is one of very few. I only know of two in Texas um, that are direct endocrinology practices, but um, we get to deliver very patient-centric care, convenient care, utilize technology, telemedicine, um, and have just that patient relationship that I was craving as a physician and I know that patients benefit from. Um, so that's what I do a year and a half later and, and I'm loving it. Okay. So let me, let's uh, get a little more background. Uh, first, why did you choose endocrinology? And, and also tell our audience what endocrinology is. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great point. Endocrinology is one of those big words in medicine that we like to throw around. Um, but endocrinology is basically the study of hormones. So any hormonal diseases, um, any hormonal disease is really my area of expertise. The um, disease that I treat the most is diabetes. Uh -huh. It's the most prevalent disease that, um, that an endocrinologist treats. And type 2 diabetes is the most common, but we also te uh, treat type 1 diabetes. Um, the next most common disease that we treat is thyroid disease. So um, underactive thyroid, overactive thyroid, thyroid cancer. Um, and then we treat other hormonal diseases like adrenal disease, pituitary disease, low testosterone, female hormone disorders, but those tend to be much less common. Is PCOS part of that spectrum? Yeah, so PCOS does um, have insulin resistance as a component of it, which is the um, one of the root causes of type 2 diabetes. So it is, there is a lot of overlap between GYN and endocrinology, yeah. for sure. When did you become plant-based and, and start applying that to your practice? Um, kind of crazy, interesting story um, and a little bit serendipitous. So when I was working at my old practice, um, we had our nanny who at that time came from Brazil as an au pair and she moved in with us and she's a nutritionist and she's plant-based. And I'm an endocrinologist and like many physicians, I didn't really pay much attention to it, to be quite honest. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled by, by that experience, but I didn't pay much attention to it. But she came when my little boy, who is now two and a half, he was a few months old, and um, when she first came, uh, our life was just kind of insane. My husband was working as a night intensivist, um, working 14-hour shifts. He gained all the baby weight that I didn't gain. Um, our, uh, I was working really long hours. Um, our son was not thriving um, like, like any mom would want their child to. And it was really because of just the rigors of our work and the demands of our work were just too much for all of the things that we were trying to do. And I started having strange symptoms that, you know, I was 33 at the time and um, I was fairly healthy, normal BMI, didn't have any medical conditions, but I was very fatigued. I had migraines. I, I struggled with migraines since I was in high school, but they were just getting really bad. And I had 
um, joint pains. And I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I need to do something. Um, and so I asked my nanny, can you teach me about this plant-based thing? Can I, I'm just going to try it. And so I tried it and all of a sudden I started feeling like within days, my joint pains went away. I started feeling better pretty much immediately. And this was in, um, January of 2020 or no, sorry, January, 2019. And, um, then I never had any plans of going completely plant-based. I just was trying to eat healthier. But then I found that every time that I would eat non-plant-based, I would feel crummy again. And I was just busy. I didn't have time to feel bad. So as any rational person like me, I'm very rational. I was like, okay, well, yes, I'm going plant-based because I feel better and I'm able to achieve my goals better with that. And my son actually, I actually was struggling with um, breast milk supply. So I'd been hesitant to change my diet. But after that, I actually had a boost in supply. And so I was like, okay, well, this is working out. And so then my husband was like, well, if you're doing a diet, then I'm going to do the diet too, because it doesn't make sense for us to do eat two different ways. And I was like, well, that's awesome. And so he, like I said, he gained all the baby weight and he lost it within three months of intermittent fasting and plant-based diet. Then my mom um, saw us and she was like, you guys are looking pretty good. What are you guys doing? And I kind of had a heart to heart with her and told her about plant-based diet. And she was like, my mom has diabetes. She's had it for decades now. She had gestational diabetes when she was pregnant with me, um, struggled with her weight for a long time. Um, And so she was like, okay, I'll try it. I want to move better with my grandkids. That was her motivation. She did it. And within a couple of months, she had lost 20 pounds. I mean, she had never been able to lose that kind of weight in my entire life that I can remember. And um, her diabetes was well controlled. I put her on a freestyle Libre continuous blood glucose monitor. I think her last A1C um, that she checked a few months ago was 5.7. And so with my little experiment, N of three, I thought there's something here. There's something here that I didn't know and I haven't learned yet, but I need to, I need to find it. <laughs> I need to find the science here. And so that's when I got introduced to um, Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. I did the plant-based nutrition course, learned a lot of science, and then um, got turned on to lifestyle medicine and, and did that. Um, and I went to the Harvard course for that. And then I was like, well, I did all the prereqs, so I guess I might as well take this board exam but just started really being an avid reader of research and studies. And, um, you know, it doesn't take many amazing patient experiences to, to teach a physician that there's really something that they need to learn about. We've both been managing diseases for our careers. And then suddenly there's this tool available to us that actually takes the disease away. Uh, and, uh, it's, it is kind of, it's mind altering as far as, we, as things go as physicians, right? Completely uh, mind blowing, you know, it, like we're so, and management, it, it's just that word management that almost irks me now, mm-hmm. um, but it's the word that we are trained with, you know, that we manage this disease. There's no talk about really reducing the need for medications, deprescription, like that's not talked about in residency training or even fellowship it was something i sort of had to realize on my own 
Um, because, you know, in all these algorithms for like hypertension and hyperlipidemia and diabetes, the first step is lifestyle modification. And it seems like we just skip right past that step and talk about medications. And what I've found in patient after patient after patient is lifestyle modification is far more powerful than any medication that we have on the market. But it takes time. And you know, as well as I do that the healthcare system is um, the reimbursement in the healthcare traditional insurance model is uh, not always uh, very helpful in doing right by our patients in the way of preventative lifestyle coaching. You could just say never. It's never, it's never geared. It's not geared at all towards, uh, uh, towards that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a sick care model as opposed to a healthcare model, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's very interesting. So, uh, when you started to dive into the science, uh, uh you became a believer in, and it, it did it start to affect the way you manage your patients. Yeah. So when I started my practice, I, um, like I said, I was a new mom, had two little ones and I thought, okay, I have a really incredible skill set that I've been working for my whole life to gain. I don't, I want to start a practice because I don't want anyone else telling me what I can and can't do with regard to my family, but I don't want to lose my skill set. I never had, I didn't expect it to be as popular as it became. Um, but I had a few patients who decided to just take the leap with me and I'm so grateful for them because the patient stories are what help other patients. I had one of my first patients was a type one a patient with type one diabetes. And most of us think about type two diabetes and lifestyle modification, improving type two diabetes, which it does. But I started learning about insulin resistance more in detail and um, how lipids or fat can affect insulin resistance. And so I asked my patient who is like a phenomenal patient and person. She is um, a mom of two homeschooled her kids while working like she homeschooled her kids before COVID. And she's very compliant. She's one of those people that weighs her food, um, measures her food, and she was still struggling with hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia. So would you call her a brittle diabetic? Brittle diabetes, um, I've seen so much diabetes at this point um, and so much type 1 diabetes that often is labeled brittle. Um, but more often than not, brittle diabetes is just that the patient isn't on a good di diabetes regimen. So either the doctor isn't giving the patient good advice or the patient isn't following good advice. Um, but she was, she was just trying a ketogenic diet. And so she was extremely insulin resistant for a type one patient um, and really not eating very many carbs at all. Um, and so in our type one patients, we as endocrinologists calculate how many grams of carbs a patient can have for every unit of insulin. So for all my type one patients, I can tell you um, for X number of carbs, they'll need one unit of insulin. When she had come to me on a ketogenic diet, she had an insulin to carb ratio of one to six. So for every six grams of carbs, she needed one unit of, of insulin, which is very insulin resistant for a, a type one diabetic. We, they typically have a carb ratio of one to 12 or one to 14. Um, and, and her LDL cholesterol was like 180 and she was, she's lean. I told her, look, 
I've been learning about this plant-based thing. I'm eating a plant-based diet. Do you want to try it? And she was like, yes, I'll try anything because this isn't working. And also it sounds like a diet that I can actually feed my kids. And within two weeks, no joke, her insulin to carbohydrate ratio was one to 16. So we nearly tripled her insulin sensitivity. Her insulin doses had decreased significantly. And she went from eating 30 grams of carbs a day to nearly 200 grams of carbs a day. Good carbs, healthful carbs from fruits and vegetables. And her quality of life was so much improved. And within three months, her LDL cholesterol with no change in statin or cholesterol lowering medication dropped to 80. She's doing great. And her A1C improved. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I never uh, considered before that someone who's on a high fat diet, uh, you know, I, I know I obviously knew that that's going to make you more insulin resistant, but I, I guess I, I never thought about the fact that it makes you more resistant. Does it make you more resistant to even the exogenous insulin that you inject? Yes. And, it, and that makes sense, but I hadn't thought about it. You want to improve or decrease your resistance no matter what type of diabetes you have, because yeah. whether you're making your own insulin or whether you're taking exogenous insulin, you want it to be as effective as possible. Right. And the typical type one phenotype is someone who's lean and they're typically pretty sensitive to insulin, which is thought to be one to 12 or one to 14. Now, there are some people who are on a very low fat plant-based diet who have insulin sensitivities that are like one to 25. Um, we haven't studied that sort of insulin sensitivity enough to know that, hey, that's way better than a one to 16 or a one to 14. But we do know there are insulin resistant type ones. We see that all the time now that obesity is so prevalent. And we know that we don't want our type ones to be insulin resistant with a carb ratio of like one to six or one to three. Gosh, some, some patients have like a one to one. Um, How can they eat? They can't even eat any carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they'll have to take a boatload of insulin to <laughs> overcome come the insulin resistance. But yeah, so I started seeing patients like that where um, I was just like blown away by the outcomes. Um, and I just, so I just kept reading, you know, it, I, literally a day doesn't go by that I don't read an article because I just find it so fascinating. Uh, I just kept kind of talking to my patients about this and everybody's sort of on their path, right? Not everybody's going to flip the switch like this woman did, but I saw so much improvement in lipid profiles and um, decrease in need for a medication that I'm just pretty confident in, in recommending a plant-centric diet. You know, I always say it's, it's plant-based. It doesn't have to be plant-perfect. It doesn't have to be plant-only for everybody, but just make plants the majority of your plate and you will see some benefit. How does an individual who's now by their primary physician diagnosed with diabetes or thyroid issues, how do they then make their way to an endocrinologist? At what point in that, in that journey? Yeah, so such a hard, uh, hard thing to, to find, right? <laughs> a great endocrinologist. So my humble opinion is that every patient with diabetes should have the opportunity to see an endocrinologist early in their disease. And the reason for that is because we, we are focused on diabetes, right? We spend years of our life doing diabetes over and over and over and over again. I mean, my fellowship, I 
would see dozens of patients every single day. And I would chart every single blood sugar they'd ever had in the hospital um, and look at the insulin doses, see how different variable, how their IV fluids affected their glucose, how their, what they ate, ask the nurse what they ate, um, how their TPN affected their blood sugars. You know, we are extremely meticulous people who have gone through this rigorous training of just understanding blood sugar on a level that I could, couldn't even come close to after my internal medicine residency. And so now diabetes is a part of who I am. It is just, you know, somebody talks about a blood sugar and I can already, I'm, I'm 10 steps ahead of where I would have been had I not had this extra training. Also, we are focused, right? So when you go to a primary care doctor, and I'm so grateful that we have so many wonderful PCTs out there who I know are working so hard and doing their very best, but they're tasked with a hundred different things. You know, they have to be the medical home. They have to deal with, you know, patients with type 2 diabetes often have multiple other medical problems, coronary artery disease, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Um, potentially other um, other diseases. And so, and primary care doctors aren't given that much time to spend with their patients. And so um, without time, expertise, and ability to focus on one thing in a visit, it makes it very difficult for them to give the same level of care as we are able to because we have more training, more resources, more focus, and um, resources in terms of medication reps, new data. Um, people are always coming to us with new data. It just falls in my lap, right? And so, um, so I think that if you're diagnosed with diabetes or any sort of specialized disease, at some point early in the disease, to see a specialist. And that's my opinion as a specialist. Before, when I graduated from internal medicine residency, I, I thought I knew a lot, right? I thought I knew a lot and would have been less likely to refer to a specialist. Now that I know more about and I know what specialty training is, I am much more likely to refer to another specialist, even though I'm an internist too, because I just know the depth and breadth of training. Um, and so I really do recommend that um, diabetics try to see an endocrinologist at least once early in their disease. But that's hard to do. We're few and far between. In, in San Antonio, most endos have a three-month wait list. It's hard to see your endocrinologist frequently. 85% of patients with diabetes are seen by PCPs. So one of my goals is to find a way to scale myself um, to provide education online that's good. Um, because, you know, there's so, <laughs> there's so much online, some of it very good. And some of it very, very bad and dangerous um, from a lot of people who are sort of charlatans putting out whatever um, they feel like or whatever they read from a headline, you know. And so um, hopefully we can get some good education out to the masses. But if you can, um, try to see a specialist. Yeah, the unfortunate reality is there's 30 million diabetics out there uh, and not enough endocrinologists to see them all, right? Uh, so. Yeah then, uh, you know, there's not, so there is not enough of you to go around. So who, who ends up, who ends up seeing you? Now that I'm in a different type of model, I don't need referrals. So anyone really can come see me, but generally, yeah, 
we often get just the very complicated patients with complications already or patients on insulin. The problem though is I've still yet to see a patient referred to me who is on an optimized regimen. And that's sure. not a knock on any physician. It's just, um, it's just reality, right? And so I always just feel so bad when I get this patient who's 20 years in, and I haven't been around <laughs> for 20 years, but let's say they were 10 years in, they've been mismanaged, and now they have kidney disease and eye disease and all these things that I just like, gosh, I wish you saw me 10 years ago, you know, or gosh, I wish you didn't have to go or patients who were hospitalized for DKA because they were treated for type two when they really had type one or just these things that it just makes me feel like, gosh, I wish I had more access. I wish that these patients didn't have to go through this because patients don't know. They don't know what medical training is and they shouldn't have to know Um, And I know that everybody's out there doing their best, but I also am very much available for curbside consults. I have plenty of doctors in San Antonio who call me all the time. I'm very open to it because I know what what goes on. There have been patients at one of our big hospitals here who have unnecessary, you know, in my opinion, died from complications because there's no inpatient endocrinologist, you know. And so I'm always open for curbside consults. if you're a patient, um, make sure you're, you're looking up your, do- your doctor, talk to your doctor friends, talk to people, um, get a good recommendation because who your doctor is and what their specialty is can really make a big difference in your care and your yeah. life. We don't have a, a uh, well-known inpatient endocrinologist in my hospital. I mean, so that's, uh, you know, here in the big city, mm-hmm. uh, it's not uncommon. So we've talked a lot about diabetes and, and in our world, we know that diabetes is one of those things that we can po- really positively affect fairly quickly. Um, but I'm curious to know, uh, tell us a little bit about thyroid disease and the role plant-based nutrition plays in that, how, and how can we help it? Yes. Yeah, so there are a few different um, types of thyroid disease that we commonly see. Hypothyroidism secondary to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease. Autoimmune attack of the thyroid is the most common for sure. Um, And then, and so that's underactive thyroid. And then there's overactive thyroid too, hyperthyroidism, um, most commonly due to Graves' disease, which is another autoimmune disease that there's antibodies that stimulate the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormones. And then other forms of hyperthyroidism are thyrotoxicosis due to thyroiditis or um, you know, post that can be postpartum or postviral. You can have a toxic adenoma. So that's like a benign tumor producing excess thyroid hormone. People can get hyperthyroidism from amiodarone toxicity. So different, different um, ways to get hyperthyroidism. Um, and then the other thyroid disease that we see fairly commonly, but not as much is thyroid cancer. And so actually an endocrinologist treats thyroid cancer, not an oncologist. So, um, and then patients can have hypothyroidism if they have their thyroid removed for um, either hyperthyroidism or thyroid cancer. Um, so we see, see those pretty often. Um, and I think we, there's a lot out there about nutrition and the thyroid. Um, so I'm going to kind of touch on the common things that we see. So one is gluten and hypothyroidism. So there is really no data that suggests that if you are diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you have to be gluten-free. Now, 
Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease. And when you have one autoimmune disease, you are at higher risk of having another autoimmune disease. And so patients with Hashimoto's are at higher risk for developing another autoimmune disease called celiac disease. So if you have Hashimoto's and you have celiac disease, then you have to, uh, you should avoid gluten because of the celiac disease. Um, there are also people who just feel crummy when they eat gluten. And they may have gluten intolerance, even though they don't have antibodies for celiac disease. Those people too, it's fine to avoid gluten. You don't have to eat gluten. But if you have Hashimoto's and you have no intolerance to gluten, you feel fine eating gluten um, and you have no qualms about it, then there's no um, there's nothing wrong with eating gluten because it doesn't, there's no studies that show it progresses thyroid disease worse. It may, it increases needs for medications, um, those kinds of things. So gluten's a big one. Um, and then another one that we hear about often is soy. So what's the deal with soy and thyroid? So soy, um, is a common food that we eat in a plant-based diet, right? Um, and, and so it would be sort of unfortunate if patients with thyroid disease couldn't eat this, um, plant-based protein. And the good news is that I actually researched this, uh, a couple days ago to make sure that I was on point. Um, there, there's an article in thyroid, which is a big, is the big thyroid journal that says adults with, um, hypothyroidism should not be counseled to avoid soy. Now, what, but where does the question even come from, right? So there are two things that, two things that studies have found, and this is cited by the hypothyroidism guidelines um, by the American Thyroid Association. One is that soy can impair the absorption of thyroid hormone supplementation, so levothyroxine synthroid. And so patients who are, have a high soy diet may require higher doses of medication than they would if they didn't eat soy. That doesn't mean their thyroid isn't working as well. It means they're just not absorbing as much of the medication. And the other thing was there was one small study of about 60 participants that showed an increased rate of subclinical hypothyroidism converting to overt hypothyroidism in patients who ate more soy. So perhaps patients with, you know, potential need for medication, but not necessarily need for medication if they were asymptomatic, that's the subclinical group, progressed to um, a point in hypothyroidism where they did definitely need medication um, with higher soy. But like I said, it's a, it was a 60-person study, and there was only one study that I could find that, that showed that. So we certainly need more, more information to make a good good assessment of what that all means. Um, I'm going to stop there. There's a, two other dietary things, but I just wanted to ask if you have any questions about those things. No, actually, uh, hearing that there might be a connection or a concern, you know, consuming soy products and thyroid problems is new to me. Of course, I'm not a doctor, but it's good that you brought it up. It's not one that we, we talk about much, but I, uh, there's this common thread on social media about it. So I just wanted to sort of nip it in the bud for my own understanding um, and hopefully for everyone else who's listening's understanding. And then the, the next question that you had asked about was crucifers. 
So there's no evidence on this. Like I did a PubMed search, there's literally zero articles on it. Um, and in thyroid, um, American Thyroid Association, there's zero articles on it. I think back in like the 1950s, there was this talk about like goitrogens and perhaps these veggies have um, a substance that can lead to goiter, but hasn't really panned out in any scientific evidence. And these are such healthful veggies that um, I would hate for people to feel like they were off the table. So don't avoid them just because you're scared about getting a goiter. Goitrogens means uh, something that might cause a goiter or enlargement of your thyroid. And uh, when we're talking about cruciferous, we're talking about cruciferous vegetables. It's like it always comes up. So I'm glad you're clarifying that. Yeah. So your broccoli is good. Your cauliflower is good. Your cabbage is good. As far as the evidence shows, we can eat our crucifers. And the last thing I wanted to touch on was iodine. So if you go to GNC or these supplement stores, you'll see iodine supplement, thyroid supplements that has like thousands and thousands of milligrams of iodine in it. Stay away from those, run away from them as fast as you can. The thing about iodine is it can, especially in high doses, it can affect the thyroid in unpredictable ways. So it can cause profound hypothyroidism or it can cause um, profound hyperthyroidism. We've seen patients in the hospital with this. Patients with um, contrast, they can, contrast has iodine in it. If they get a CT scan or something like that, that can cause the thyroid to become overactive. So we know this from a medical standpoint. Um, so we get enough iodine from our soil that our fruits and veggies are grown in from iodized salt. We don't have iodine deficiency here. Like, you know, people in Africa might. And mm -hmm. so, um, don't take massive iodine supplements. I know prenatal vitamins have iodine in them. They don't have excessive amounts, so that's okay. But, um, don't take iodine supplements from your favorite vitamin store. Okay. Yeah. So I got another question now, uh, in the spectrum of, uh, disease that you treat as an endocrinologist, what other, other areas do you see plant-based nutrition as being helpful? So plant-based nutrition and thyroid, just because I think I, I missed answering that question. So the thing about plant-based nutrition is we think that it's anti-inflammatory. You know, we've looked at reactive oxidative species. We've looked at AGEs, those kinds of things. And when we think of autoimmune disease, that's a pro-inflammatory state. So perhaps if there's anything that we can do to reduce the risk of thyroid disease, perhaps eating a more plant-centered diet would help. I can't say that that's for sure. I can't say that studies say that, but theor theoretically it could potentially be true. But you know, with thyroid disease, oftentimes there's a lot of symptoms, right? Fatigue, weight gain, constipation, depressed mood, um, hair loss, hair um, dryness, skin dryness, all of these things, if your thyroid is normal and you still have them, then we've got to work, we have got to figure out why and it's, it's not the thyroid anymore, right? And so um, we can fix some of these symptoms by eating a healthful plant-centric diet. And I'll tell you, I have patients who have had symptoms of hypothyroidism, thought it was their thyroid for a long time, and then we changed the way they ate and the way they moved their body, and voila, their thyroid symptoms are gone. Um, yeah. There was actually a study that showed that people with normal thyroid hormone levels um, 
but symptoms of hypothyroidism improved better with placebo than thyroid hormones. The symptoms are real. Like I don't, I don't mean to say that by in terms of like making fun of somebody or anything like that. The symptoms are real and we need to address them. If it's not the thyroid, we've got to fix it in a different way. And then other endocrinological diseases. Well, obesity is a huge one um, that we treat all the time. A healthful plant-based diet can certainly help with that with appropriate calorie um, restriction. Um, hyperlipidemia, um, diabetes, of course, as we spoke about, um, and, you know, general overall health tends to improve everything. The body is a system. So I think the food that we feed our body makes a big difference for pretty much everything. Okay. So I'm going to ask a question, uh, uh, not medically related, but what do your colleagues, your endocrinologist colleagues think about your approach? That's a really interesting question because endocrinologists are uh, an interesting group in the way of nutrition. And um, there are people who are forward thinking and there are people who really aren't and everywhere in between. I, I have a couple of best friends who are endocrinologists. One of them happens to be my neighbor. She was um, more on the low carb side. I don't think she was totally ketogenic, but definitely was, was a low carb endocrinologist. And um, when I started learning about plant-based diet, I was like, you've got to see this data. You've got to see this data. I kept telling her about it. And she thought I was nuts for a little while, but she is super smart and she wants to do what's right for her patients, like many doctors do. And so as physicians, we can't go by our own biases and we have to go by the data. And so she did that. She really kind of swallowed it and she was like, wow, this is really interesting. And within like two months, she was plant-based. <laughs> and so the endocrinology data, even the ADA, um, yes, they recommend eating more whole grains, legumes, fruits, veggies, but the ADA doesn't ascribe to one diet. ACE is much more um, plant-centric. Um, none of them actually ascribe to a ketogenic diet which I think is interesting because the majority of endocrinologists, I think, still are prescribing a low-carb or ketogenic diet. Um, but, but I think people are warming up to the idea. Maybe it's just because I'm in this world, but I think more people are, are warming up to this idea. And I'm actually in a pod with a, a group of plant-based endocrinologists, so, um, and a few of whom are, are lifestyle medicine boarded. So, when you say pod, how, what, like a Facebook one or? Uh, uh, what's, we're on a WhatsApp group and we chat oh, and Michelle McMackin's on it too. And uh, we um, just share so much data. Gosh, I get the best articles from them. They're just so awesome. I learned so much from them and we talk, um, you know, a few times a week. And um, so there's definitely plant-based endocrinologists. I think people are warming up to it. We have a lot of studies now that support it. Um, and different people support it. Yeah, I'm in a vascular surgery pod, and I get tired of talking to myself because I'm the only one who's a part of it. <laughs> that's, that's the only, only one I know in the country, unfortunately. Well, uh, first I might ask, are you licensed only in the state of Texas or others? Yeah, so I'm licensed in Texas. I have a California license right now, but I haven't, I'm still working on my malpractice for California, so I haven't started seeing patients in California yet. Okay, so for, for our Texas residents watching then, uh, how can they work with you if they want to? Texas patients, um, our website is um, www.sacomplete.com. So S is in Sam, A is in Apple, like San Antonio, complete.com. 
and um, patients can register online. There's an enroll now button. All the paperwork is online. And when you enroll, we'll get notified and we'll be in touch with you shortly thereafter to schedule your first appointment. Um, we, right now, actually our clinic is full, but we are still taking um, patients with diabetes and metabolic thyroid disease. We take care of transgender patients. And then other hormonal diseases are sort of um, assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. And we, um, we try to take as many patients as we can, to be honest. But um, at this point, really want to make sure they have an endocrine issue since, you know, endocrinologists are so rare. We want to make sure that we're seeing endocrine patients. Um, but I review every patient myself. So, um, and patients also have an opportunity to have a meet and greet with me because our practice model is different. And so um, my office will, if, if a patient would like, my office can schedule a complimentary meet and greet where we talk for 15 minutes. The patients can meet me see if they think it's a good fit, and then go about making a decision about joining the practice. Um, and that way they can ask any questions about the practice model. And I really want patients to um, get what they're looking for when they see us. I don't want them to be shelling out a whole, you know, their cash and um, not get what they, what they want. I want it to be a great fit for them. So that's why we offer that service as well. But actually we did a price comparison of my practice compared to my old practice. And the out-of-pocket costs in my clinic, because I have such deep discounts on labs and imaging and um, transparency of pricing, people actually pay less out-of-pocket for three months of care with me than they do at the other endocrinology practice for like one 10-minute visit. Whereas with me, they have like a 60-minute initial consult. They can call me, text me, email me anytime, unlimited appointments. And um, patients can follow me on Instagram. I'm um, Dr. Arthi Thangadu. That's <laughs> straightforward, simple, just my name. Um, we have a Facebook page too for complete medicine. Um, so multiple ways to get a hold of us, but for enrollment, yeah, definitely go through the website. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, do you have um, any final message for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, I would love to see patients and if they have any questions for me, they can always reach out to me. I, I think I'd like to leave patients with a couple of things. So there is a lot of misinformation on the internet, especially in the world of endocrinology. Hormones are very on trend right now. I feel like everybody and their mom is claiming to be a hormone expert. There are more uh, non-evidence-based hormone providers within 50 miles of me. There are two times as many, more than twice as many, non-evidence-based hormone providers in my area than endocrinologists. Things that we see in the endocrinology world are are very dangerous complications of these non-evidence-based hormone therapies like BioT, um, high, uh, thyroid medication in patients that don't have thyroid disease, um, adrenal fatigue, which is not a medical diagnosis. People put on expensive supplements for a disease that is non-existent um, that can actually cause adrenal insufficiency. The, the supplement that they're selling you can actually cause a life-threatening disease. When you're looking for a hormonal provider, um, for the sake of your safety, please look for somebody who is board certified in endocrinology or a board certified GYN if it's a, a female hormone issue, because we are seeing so many patients in the hospitals, um, you know, with cardiac arrhythmias, thyrotoxicosis, osteoporosis, like real bad things that you don't want to happen to you because um, there's a lot of providers who you know, the, the most dangerous thing in a physician is the stuff that you don't know that you don't know. 
And so mm. people who aren't experts are prescribing all these things without a good enough basis of knowledge. So in some ways, you know, maybe it's not their fault. They don't know that what they're doing is as dangerous, but just seek out a board certified hormone specialist, not somebody that did an 18 hour certification online. Um, and make sure that that hormone specialist has like an MD or DO behind their name. Um, so that's, that's my word of safety advice. Um, but the, the motivational thing that I want to leave patients with is it's never too late to start a healthful lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's no step that isn't meaningful. So nobody expects you to be perfect. Rome wasn't built in one day. The work is more important than anything. So a commitment to health and making healthy choices every day, whether it's your sleep or how you manage your stress or how you cope with the situation or what you choose to put in your mouth or how you choose to move your body, every day counts. And a bad day doesn't um, destroy or negate a good day. So just put in the work um, and we can we can make our country and our world healthier together as we talk about it more. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Uh, great information from an endocrinologist. And uh, so we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So what did you think about this episode? Did Dr. Thanguru answer some of your questions related to diabetes and thyroid issues? Let me know in the comments below. And thanks again for listening. Been listening to the Plant Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.